everybody to Managing Well, our podcast. I'm so excited to have Tali Bray with us um, for an incredible conversation on tackling tech's lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Tali Bray is EVP, Head of Technology, Diverse Segments, Representation, and Inclusion at Wells Fargo. She leads a team that embeds equity and belonging principles into the business of technology, driving product and engagement outcomes. Holly, welcome, and I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Thanks, Tanya. Yes. So first, before we kind of get into everything, tell us more about your role um, as head of technology, diverse segments, representation, and inclusion <laughs> at Wells Fargo. Because that's yeah, a mouthful. <laughs> I was like, it is a mouthful. Honestly, I feel like your intro was so generous. You kind of described my role for me, but I will do my best to supplement that. So um, what I would say about this role, uh, my role, candidly, the team, um, and really diverse segments, representation, and inclusion for Wells Fargo are relatively new functions. Um, DSRI, which is the Enterprise Diverse Segments Representation and Inclusion, is headed by Clever Santos. He reports directly to the CIO. Uh, that organization is about two years old. My organization, where I have a dotted line, uh, actually I have two solid lines, I report into this enterprise DSRI organization and also into Saul Van Buren, who is the head, global head of technology at Wells Fargo. And um, the creation and development of both really DSRI and TDSRI, which is basically tech you know, diverse segments, representation and inclusion, really reflects, I think, first and foremost, our CEO and board's commitment to operationalizing the tenants of this work, the right, the tenants of representation, inclusion, and equity in our business. I think it's an acknowledgement and an awareness that organizations that reflect the lived experiences of their customers, the communities they serve, fundamentally outperform those that don't, right? There are McKinsey studies, University of Pennsylvania. This is data, this is fact, this is not my opinion. This is not anecdotal evidence. Um, and when those values, um, are, are critical to our business, right? So for me, for my role in the simplest terms, um, I look at my team and we're really accountable for driving people and purpose outcomes for Wells Fargo technology. And Wells Fargo technology is roughly, you know, 40,000, 35,000 people globally. It is a significantly sized people organization within Wells Fargo that is driving incredible product innovation, product development that touches the lives of hundreds of thousands you know, of, of people. So really understanding the importance of representation in terms of our business strategy and then equity and inclusion in terms of our culture are paramount to our business strategy. You know, when I look again at our group, I really think, so we're a tiny group, right? 40,000 people, we're like 15 people. Um, we really consider ourselves culture catalysts. Um, and we think about that as, you know, we create awareness, we provide tools and opportunities for leaders to drive um, improved representation, equity and inclusion across technology. And we really think about centering empathy as a way to support employees and build intentional allyship and advocacy while really modeling inclusive behaviors. And I think a lot about the difference between allyship and advocacy. So happy to talk about that today or at a later point. Um, 
And, you know, as you mentioned, we focus on three areas that align to our company's DEI principles, representation outcomes, marketplace outcomes, and culture of inclusion. Um, we have an incredible roster, I think, of leaders in technology that sit on our DEI council, which really amplifies the activities for each of those areas for visibility and impact. And as I mentioned, our global head of technology, Saul Van Bearden, chairs that council with me. Um, you know, I could share, I can pause, I could share a bit about sort of my journey into this role because I've been a professional technologist for 20, 30 years. I'm not a DEI professional. I'm not an HR professional. So this is a very different pivot for me the past 18 months. So that is, I'm actually, thank you for saying that. Um, and I appreciate um, giving us more context of, of all that you are doing in your very big role um, and the newness of the role, right? Um, and so, yeah, I would love to hear more about the shift from being a technologist to being in the HR DEI space, yeah. um, which is at the core of everything, right? Exactly. So I would love to hear more. Exactly. So, um, so you know, it's interesting. I think historically, DEI culture, ERNs, you know, councils have been really sort of treated as if I say book clubs, right? They're, oh. I mean, kind of. You, when you say it, I mean, I, I'm like, oh. <laughs> um, and I, I I hear you. It's a bit of a shocking, um, real, I think, I think it's accurate. Yeah, I mean, right there, HR adjacencies, they haven't been, they haven't had proximity to true power P&L direction, mm -hmm. which is what mm -hmm. drives most firms. Mm -hmm. And they're sort of adjunct. Um, and I think in the past couple of years, candidly, you know, as we've seen much more focus on social justice, equity, mm -hmm. and as our consumers are holding us accountable, yes. we have yes. started to see this shift in moving from sort of this adjacency. I, I, I love book clubs. So I'm, I'm like, you can see books behind me. So I don't want to diss book clubs. <laughs> but, you know, it has not had that core business impact. I think we've seen that shift, which talks a bit about sort of my transition. Um, I so I grew up in a very non-traditional family in a very conservative and traditional environment. My parents uh, were, you know, they were radicals. They fought for social justice simply through their existence, but also through their actions in a time when it was not popular and it was certainly not always safe where I was growing up. Um, they really ingrained these principles in me. Uh, and you know, as a young queer person growing up with a father with a disability and a mother who emigrated to the U.S. in the '60s living in a deeply conservative space, this really can like combine to give me the sense mm. of being an outsider, which played a really large factor in forming my worldview. Um, and when I went to school, uh, I went to school actually to become an opera singer. Um, clearly that didn't happen. That's another story. Uh, but what came out of this experience was number one, realization I was not cut out to be a professional musician or performer. Um, and number two, that I needed to hustle and find a way to support myself, you know, now that my scholarships and stipends were over. Um, so I got a job at a help desk in the early 90s. And based on my aptitude, my grit, um, and my competencies, which were not skills or experience, mm -hmm. I really turned myself into this technologist. And this was a time where there were not a lot of women or people of color, really candidly anyone other than white cis men in technology. Um, and I, you know, I hustled, I story told, and I convinced someone to take a chance on me. Um, and I translated that into a 25 career, year career. And so that's sort of how I came into technology mm -hmm. um, and, you know, 
I'm, I'm very intentional about how I introduce myself, you know, as a white cis queer woman. Um, and part of that is because I want to show up as I fully am each and every time. I want to leverage my privilege to shed light on the ways in which people can identify with privilege and accountability and then capitalize on my own power to advocate. And I don't want people to make assumptions about me. So this has sort of been my core my core value system throughout my career as a technologist. Mm -hmm. um, and about two years ago, when Saul and Kleber talked about creating a role that was embedded within technology to drive these critical outcomes, it was really important you had somebody who was fluent in technology, because candidly, to ensure that this is not an adjacency, this is not an adjunct activity, you have to have somebody within the organization that has credibility and is fluent. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll also be really honest, I had colleagues that I trust when I talked about doing this saying, oh, if you want to end your career, that's fine. Like if this is what you want to do and retire, that's fine. You won't be a CIO again. And I, you know, I, I thought about this a lot and two things. Number one, just candidly, those responses kind of pissed me off because mm -hmm. what it told me is people still, a lot of people do not value this work or they would not have said that. True. And number two, um, because of sort of my values and who I am, it was one of those moments of like, wow, this is a moment of truth. I can actually go commit to the things I have purported to live through board, leadership, you know, social activity. I can now translate this and trying to drive behaviors in a really large organization. So um, so that was it. You know, that was really important to me. And I will I will also share, you know, my daughter is trans and I'll talk. We can talk about this a bit later, but. As she started to get older and I started to feel her pain at not uh -huh. seeing herself represented uh -huh. and her fear uh -huh. and candidly my fear and terror as a parent. As a parent, yep. Um, which I know a lot of parents can relate to. Uh, I realized, and I am almost embarrassed to say this because I know you know, but representation matters. Uh -huh. And I think uh -huh. there is this issue that until people feel things personally, it is difficult for them to truly understand. We can intellectually understand something we can say as part of our core values, but until we are personally impacted, it is, it, we have a very different approach. And so for me, these were sort of the moments of truth that were adding up to say, okay, this is, you know, I would have deeply regretted not trying. And to your earlier comment, everything is about people. We hear this all the time. You know, culture eats strategy for lunch. Bet on people, mm -hmm, don't mm -hmm, bet on strategy. Mm -hmm, well, if mm -hmm. we truly believe that, then everything we do should center people. You know, you've said uh, you said so much that I want to kind of hone in. I have I have so many questions, so I'm trying <laughs> so many follow up questions. But the last piece of what you were talking about, yes, representation matters, right? It, but it 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 hits you differently when your proximity to it is is closer, right? Whether it's someone, a family, friend, uh, yourself. And so for, for people managers who are in workplaces where they are the majority, right? So tech is majority white cis men, right? Um, who may not have ever had the experience of being the only, who may yeah. not have ever known right. what it's like for representation to matter because they are represented everywhere, right? Um, I remember talking to somebody, uh, a white man in, in the tech industry, and he said, you know, I've been affirmed all my life as a white man. Everywhere I go, I'm affirmed for it. And so not having that personal experience of going into spaces where you are not affirmed, um, like what can companies do, right? 
and people managers. So I th I'm thinking kind of on the individual people management level and on the, the macro company level to actively create environments where everybody can, can actually thrive, especially if they're not part of the majority environment. So, you know, it's so, um, it's, it's an interesting and a really important question. And I've been talking, I talk about this a lot. And on some level, my answer is always people simply have to want to do the work and then they have to do the work. <laughs> and I got, you know, like I get all the time, okay, Tally, as a woman in tech, you know, at, what, what, and like people just have to be willing to do the work. So one of the biggest misses I think we have um, in organizations, a couple actually, that if we can address, I think we'll actually start to shift culture. And what we're talking about is fundamentally shifting culture, right? It is shifting what people Company culture. believe and how people behave. And I'm sure you've heard this ongoing argument. Does behavior change belief? Does belief change behavior? And in companies, we have historically said people do what people do how they're measured. So uh -huh. what you've seen, right, in the uh -huh. past several uh -huh. years is DEI metric measurement, representation uh -huh. measurement. Um, uh -huh. We're starting to talk about mobility measurement, right? Now, the issue with this is I can change behavior through measurement. Uh -huh. It is not necessarily authentic or sustainable. And if I uh -huh. don't drive belief along with it, I end up with a culture that has an undercurrent of representation, uh, sorry, of um, resentment, right? And people feel that. You know, People this is it. also like we have a lot of conversations candidly about with affirmative action. I've had some really strong coaching from colleagues of mine. Specifically, I was recently at an event where I was talking about representation data and affirmative action. And he he's a black gay man. And he said, please don't do that again. The moment you use those words, number one, everyone turns and looks at me. <laughs> and number two, it becomes this argument about legality and quotas, not quotas. And what I'm finding is, and I was grateful that he shared that with me and my well-intentioned desire to like make things data-driven led me to behave in a way that had unintended consequences, right? So mm. that's why conversations are like such a gift. And I know it's cliche, but I think it's true. So, um, you know, back to how do companies change behavior and belief in a sustainable way? Yes. We tend to focus on you're a black woman, you have a ton of potential. I, I can't wait to develop you. I've got this great program with ITSMF. It's a leadership development program. We're gonna get you a sponsor. You're gonna be developed in this program. You're going to be outstanding. Excellent. I'm your manager, I'm a white woman. And I'm like, okay, fine, she can go to that program. But I have a lot of unconscious bias in my system. I don't really see my development of you as part of my core responsibility. I'm uh -huh. simply focused on my metrics and my outcomes. Uh -huh. And so I think one of the huge misses we make is that we just think that by solving development and support for diverse talent, we're solving a cultural issue. When yes. the real issue is yes. what are we doing to support managers who tend to be from majority communities? How are uh -huh. we developing managers uh -huh. to uh -huh. actually support talent? And I wanna um, you know, share two points to that. Number one, I really struggle with the word diverse and diversity uh, in a corporate environment. In fact, it's become probably my least favorite word because we 100% conflate it with race and ethnicity. True. And the reality is diversity is an incredibly rich set of attributes. There's racial, ethnic diversity, gender, sexual orientation, 
you know, cognitive disabilities, whether religious, religious, Mm -hmm. I may Mm -hmm. be an extrovert, you may be an introvert. This is the richness. This is when companies outperform. But we have become so sort of polarized around these conversations. And we've conflated that with race and ethnicity. Um, And so we try to talk about historically underrepresented populations and creating access and inclusion for historically underrepresented populations. So I just wanted to share that because I myself stumble because I I, I, language is so important and we have to be really, really intentional. Um, it's important and it evolves, right? Yeah. And it evolves. Yeah, and so I, I think mean, the words that we use now are different than that we used to use yeah. in the past. And, and like that, that constant evolution, I think is important for, I just want to kind of say that it's important for us to remember yeah. um, because sometimes people are like, I don't want to say the wrong thing because language changes. <laughs> and we get that all the time in the LGBTQ plus yes. IA, is it LGBTQ, yes. Yes. queer? Yes. You know, like can white people in the LGBTQ plus community use queer, which was a space and a language used for people of color in the queer community? Like we get that all the time, even with, you know, people, gender pronouns. And mm-hmm. I'm always like, just try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you misgender, apologize. Try, try again. If you use a word that, Somebody may find offensive and they share that with you, apologize. Oh, so I want to, two, two things I really want to hone in on that I just don't want to lose this thread. The actions people can take and feedback, because you mentioned that. And like, to me, those are so important pieces. You said, you know, people just have to, they, they have to try, they have to take action. People, managers have a responsibility. And so I would love to hear from you, like, what are, you know, two things that people managers can do to really support talent on their team to your point, Tali, that it's not, it's not always developing the individual talent of underrepresented people. It's changing the culture right. in which they have to right. work. And so like, what could people managers do on their own teams to support that? Okay, so I think a really basic thing is ask. Say, ask, say more. Ask, the, ask their employees what they need. To like, <laughs> so if you're my manager, Tally, what do you need? Like, what do you need to, like, how are you feeling? What do you need to feel safe and included in this organization? Do you feel engaged? Um, mm-hmm. Are you having to just ask? Like, that is the best way to demonstrate commitment to your employees is to ask them, know them, know your team. Yes. You know, and depending on the size of your organization, have skip levels. Like, yes. move down into your organization yes. and just, that agenda is like, there is no agenda. I simply want to get to know you. I want to get yes. to know our organization. And in doing so, you will uncover areas of excellence where there's a true culture of inclusion that you may want to model. You will uncover areas where there are problems and there is clearly bias in the system that needs to be addressed. So I think asking number one, number two, managers, and I think particularly managers for majority communities need to step in and be comfortable with difficult conversations. And they need to be comfortable at, I would encourage them, I would, I wish everybody would be uncomfortable leaning into those difficult conversations, asking for feedback and creating a space to actually receive that feedback. When my colleague looked at me and said, please don't ever do that again. I was like, oh, oh my, yeah, of course. I could have been like, look, it is. It's part of the data. We're a right. data-driven organization. Is it is absolutely appropriate for me to do this. It is another set of data that drives measurement and behavior. But I completely understood and I wanted that feedback. So I think asking for feedback, being really sincere and creating space to receive it, going deep into your organization, 
finding organizations, and you will see that, as I said, have excellence, understanding mm -hmm. more about what's working there, and trying mm -hmm. to model that in other organizations. And leaderships at all levels should be talking about equity, representation, and inclusion, and the business strategy around this. Like, so I want to pick apart a couple of things you said, because you said them so quickly, but they're so, so meaty. Um, in terms of people managers just asking their team for what they need and getting to know them and checking in with them. And so that just the, the point of like people, your team, they're people, they're individuals, they're mm -hmm. humans, right? Mm -hmm. And so getting to know them on that level. And I know a lot of people managers say, I don't have time for that. It's not part of my KPI. Yeah. But to your point, if you want a well-run team, which yep. is going to contribute to the, yep. the bottom line for the company, yep. that actually needs to be part of your KPI and getting to know yeah. people. And so just a quick, a couple of quick ways I think people can do it because it can feel overwhelming. It can feel like it takes yeah. too much time. You know, I always say like, if you have a team meeting, whether that's weekly or monthly um, or one-on-ones, but even in team meetings, you can do a quick check-in and just put it in the chat. If it's a virtual meeting or a one word answer that everybody gives, like, how are you doing today? Yeah. Um, but just like those kind of touch points yeah. I think are really important. And that feedback, I want to go back to your example of the feedback you got that you received um, and your point of ma managers having difficult conversations. I completely agree. It's, it's actually necessary and core to the role that people don't realize until they're in the role. <laughs> like the amount of courage and bravery that it takes to be a good people manager. Yeah. Is, is really significant um, and leaning into conversations that a lot of people don't want to have. So I'm just really curious from your experience, when, when that man came to you and said, please don't ever do it again, I think many common reactions would have been to dismiss him, would have been to become very defensive, would have um, debated him, right? All the ways that, this, that, he, that he's wrong. Um, and you didn't do that. And so, yes, feedback is a gift and it's usually a gift that we can like, it can grip us. It doesn't yeah. always feel good in the moment. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of curious how, how you were able to receive it in a way that you could then take action that was beneficial to everybody as opposed to being defensive or denying it or debating him. I mean, part of that's like, I am who I am, you know, like okay. I don't, like we are, you know, and um, as I shared my life ex experience, um, you know, has caused me to have a certain sort of orientation, worldview, all of that has influenced that. And, um, you know, people are not always kind and people are not always receptive, particularly to people that are excluded and mm -hmm. are vulnerable and, you know, are victims of violence. So like all of those things have caused me to also really want to create space selfishly for myself <laughs> and, mm -hmm. you know, and also for people around me. So I, I, that is just part of my worldview. A couple of things, this, this, this individual and I are like close colleagues, like, like we're colleagues, we know each other. This is my whole point. Like all yes. of this work, if a stranger had come up and said that to me, I probably would have been like, I honestly, I still would have listened because this is my job also. My job is to create this space. My mm -hmm. job is to ensure that everyone in this organization feels that they have a space to be heard and supported. Mm -hmm. And I want to throw one other thing because this is a conversation that happens a lot when we talk about inclusion. 
inclusion is for everybody. I'm going to, you know, and I'm like, yes, inclusion is for everybody. But in this context, inclusion is creating space for people who have historically been excluded. <laughs> so I really need you to, not, not, but I like when I'm having this conversation, I really need you to understand that. When we talk about inclusion, that means creating space for people who have historically been excluded. So when I get feedback from people who have historically been excluded, I listen extra hard. Yes. And I really think through that because fundamentally that is my job. And again, if you're not willing to do the work, you should not be in these roles. The other thing that, you know, I would say for for managers, um, you know, skip levels, a 15, like, you, no matter how large your group is, our, you know, our head of technology, he does skip levels all the time. He meet like, he could not be busier, right? This is a priority because it's how he chooses to run his organization. So this idea that I am too busy, I am only being measured on certain outcomes, I think is becoming a very lazy excuse, candidly. Um, And also, we will start to be measuring not just representation, but also mobility, right? Mobility, in my mind, is like, I've begun to believe that representation, I think, actually sort of this traditional DEI by the numbers is almost a fallacy and can, you know, unintentionally incent poor behavior. Uh uh We can end up with a revolving door, right? Right. Which we see a lot of in organizations. They bring people, they they bring talent in, but the culture isn't a place that people want to be, and then they leave. So what we really want to be doing is focusing on that culture. I think another thing, the actionable thing that managers can do, put themselves in spaces that do not reflect them. Oh, be brave more. and go into spaces where you are not centered. Make certain it's appropriate. Make certain you're invited, but offer that. You know, there was a um, an event in San Francisco last year focused on Black excellence, Black engineering. It was an amazing event. And I think I was, I don't know, maybe one of the only white people in this space. And it was really important for me to be there. I, I was invited to be there. And I'm not going to lie, I was a little like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I wanted to be there. Like people need to authentically be in spaces that don't center them. It's okay to be uncomfortable, but you Definitely. need to be there. That's also how we start to build our networks. This is the other thing I talk to managers that's actionable. Build your networks ensure your networks don't just look like you. That means going into spaces that don't center you. And that means doing it authentically. If we are simply looking at things around representation numbers, it becomes transactional. This goes back to belief versus behavior and really culture. Uh uh Being in a place, really building your network, doing that in an authentic way, that's how you develop relationships. That's how you build pipelines. That's how you start to shift talent acquisition in your organization. And then being able to lean into that and into communities within your own organization is how you start to shift culture. And there will be metrics that we will involve as an industry to start to measure culture Uh more effectively than we do today. But I think Uh mobility is a really excellent starting space. And I also think based on what you're saying, when when people managers put themselves in places where they are the only, right? In addition to all of the really important things you just said that has like a long um, impact in the organization, it also gives them a chance to develop their own empathy of what it's like for the current people on their yeah. teams, Yeah. right? To go into work every day and yeah. might not have meetings with people who look like them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I think kind of strengthening that, that, that muscle yep. and being uncomfortable, like all of a sudden, like, oh, I, I didn't realize it. 
maybe this is what Keisha feels every day, <laughs> you know? And, oh my gosh, how, how much energy is being expended managing my own discomfort in this moment? How much energy is she expending every day at work managing her discomfort? And what if I change this environment right. for right. her that, you know, more of her, her talents can come through because less energy is spent on managing um, Literally, right. You know, this just walking into the room. Yes. Just walking yes. into the room is yes. psychological toil that from a business yes. perspective is money left on the table. It, it really is. Your big brain is 60% of your big brain is just managing walking into the room. Yes. Think of all that talent we're leaving on the table. That's why this is a business case. I mean, it yes, is. it's the right thing to do. And yes, it's moral. It is a business case. If I had a hundred percent of your brain focusing on product right. innovation, development, whatever the functional role may be. And that's one of the things we are talking to managers about and talking mm -hmm. from a cultural perspective is psychological toil, whether it's code mm -hmm. switching, masking, mm -hmm. um, that is money left on the table. We mm -hmm. need to find a way to remove the need for our employees, whether they are employees with disabilities. Like we talk about this in the neurodivergent community all the time, the amount of masking and the exhaustion uh -huh, uh -huh. that goes up to show into the room. We talk about this with racially and ethnically diverse communities, particularly for black women. Yes. The amount yes. of energy just to walk into the room, let alone to say anything, right. let alone to say anything. And then as often as not have it disregarded and be invisible. Disregarded or even um, punished for how, you know, you're too aggressive. Well, okay, because Matt over there said the same thing the same way, but, he, you know, that was a yeah. brilliant idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just, I, I, that is a whole, that whole idea of a woman, particularly a Black woman. Yes, Being yes. remotely assertive and the immediate transition to aggression, hostility, that, and I've been, I have, this may come as a shock to you. I have also been accused of being. I am not surprised. Confrontational. Because yeah. you're aggressive, aggressive, excuse me, because you're not aggressive because you're direct and you're assertive and you're confident and you're very clear in what you're saying and believing. And that comes across, let me say it differently. It doesn't come across because of people's biases. It is received yeah. as aggressive, but it's not, it's not at all aggression. And so you just kind of, I just want to kind of pinpoint this, like, People managers need to be aware of their human biases. Like they're, I'm not trying to shame people. Like we all have biases, yeah. but when you're aware of the biases, the way that you filter information is different. Cause yeah. you could say like, oh wait, I'm feeling like Tanya's being aggressive. Would I feel that way if Matt said the same thing? Right. Just right. that question, right. that self-reflection right. question helps you now receive right. my information as it was intended. Right, a hundred percent. And I think going back to managers, everything we're talking about takes like takes psychological toil of a different type for a manager. And managers right now are not encouraged or rewarded, incented to spend that kind of psychological toil, is a negative word, psychological labor uh -huh. on supporting teams. And fundamentally, a manager's team, I'm sorry, a manager's responsibility is first and foremost enabling their team and focusing on people. So we have a lot, I've had um, too many, too many, and it's primarily women of color, not exclusively, mm -hmm. um, say, I've talked about mobility, I've talked about, you know, DE&I with my manager, and I'm accused of being selfish, trying to promote myself, it, you know, really horrible experiences. And 
one of the things that I think is happening, number one, these managers um, have no cultural awareness, right? No sort of sensitivity. <laughs> they don't understand how to support people, right? Regardless of what community they're from, because yes. they are so focused on driving toward outcomes. And historically, particularly in engineering organizations, managers tend to be engineers who did really well. Yes. And so we just right. want them to be managers. Right. Without, without any, any training. Any without training. any training like, to be a people manager. We're going to make sure you're cloud certified. We're going to make sure you have all of these certifications, but we're not going to spend any time talking about what it is to develop people. And going mm -hmm. back to if culture eats strategy for lunch, mm -hmm. we should be doing everything we can to ensure managers are trained and managers have support to mm -hmm. deal with people and deal with diverse people. And by yes. diverse, I mean, true, the richness. All diversity. diversity. Yeah. And you know what I want, one point I want to make is I feel like the underrepresented groups and organizations, when people managers can have difficult conversations, can understand their own biases with these underrepresented groups, they become a better people manager for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so often you hear like, well, why is there so much focus on black talent? Why is there so much yeah. focus on disability? Because the people who have not been treated well historically, right? Yep. When you focus on giving them the environment yep. and tools that they need, yep. it gets better for absolutely everybody. And I want to give you a great example of that because I agree 100%. I think what's the phrase like raise the tide for one, the tide raises for all. I yes. Million, yes. There are a million phrases around that. But if we think about um, John Fetterman's Senate campaign, uh, in Pennsylvania. Now, regardless of what your politics are, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to be politically neutral. I'm going to state the facts, though, about this campaign. So um, he recently used live captioning um, for assistance with auditory processing issues that have occurred since his stroke. Mm -hmm. And um, the connection between his use of assisted devices and being seen as unfit to run for yes. office yes. are egregious, yes. to say the least. And the irony of that is I'm using assistive device right now. I'm wearing contacts. Right. I, I couldn't see you. I can right. barely see you with my contacts, but I couldn't see you at all without them. That's an assistive device. Right. You know, you, I think you have ear, earbuds in. Yes. Right? You yes. are using a type yes. of assistive device to support this interaction. Yes. All right. So we use assistive devices all the time, but mm -hmm. to conflate the mm -hmm. use of an assistive device with intellectual delays and yes. then candidly to weaponize that yes. in a political yes. plane is egregious, immoral, unethical. But I think the key point where I was trying to bring this is we all use assistive devices yes. in right. some form, or, not all of us, but many in some form or fashion. Mm -hmm. And so to recognize that if we can support, just mm -hmm. in this case, the use of you know closed captioning, like that is something that will benefit everyone, mm -hmm. not just this individual. Mm -hmm. It will benefit people with degrade, degraded sight as we age, right? The, right. So it is so frustrating to me that we tend to do this, oh, I'm solving something only for you. I'm being asked to solve something only for you. No, we are solving for right, everybody. Everybody. Right. It's the, and so that is like, it's the feedback, right? It is, it is the feedback given that how the culture currently is, because it was created for certain people and not yeah. for everybody. Yeah. So it's feedback that this culture doesn't work for everybody. So let's make adjustments yeah. to the culture 
so that it now it now works for everybody. And I think you know sometimes sometimes organizations do that on a on a large level, and then sometimes people managers can do it just for their team. Yeah, like right away today, right after listening to this podcast, people managers can start using um, closed caption when they need to record something and just have it done automatically, right? Yeah. Yep. So like there are these small things that don't take heavy um, lifts to very quickly create environments that are are better yeah. for absolutely everybody. I mean, after this call, people can go set up 15 minute check-ins with yes. their skip level reports. Yes. 15 and, minutes. And in that, in that 15 minutes, what would you, what is the one question you would recommend a people manager ask? So I would start with the honesty. So I would start with like why I'm doing this. You know, Tanya, I'm really interested. Number one, I just want to get a sense of how the organization is feeling, um, how things are going. And, you know, feedback for me and what I can do to support you and to support the team to be more effective. Like trust Perfect. isn't built overnight. You, no. and you can't, no. this is not a transactional no. one and done, but if you start to have these conversations, you will build community and relationships and you mm -hmm. will start to get more honesty and people will become more engaged. Uh, I think all of that is true. And what I would also add to continue to get that feedback because it does take time. And I know all organizations have um, different parameters with this, but if there is a way for people to also give you anonymous feedback, yeah, you know, by just yeah. just an email yeah. alias, however it yeah. needs to be set yeah. up, yeah. and to be able to say that in the one-on-one, -on -one, I'm also doing this because I recognize <laughs> this is new. Is going to take time, and if if a people manager wants to take it even a step further to really connect with people, to be able to say, and I don't know if this is your experience, but I am aware yeah. that sometimes when people give feedback to managers, it hurts them in the end. Yep. And I do not want you to fear that your career trajectory will be hurt because you gave me feedback. So I'm just letting you know there's another way to share feedback with me because I really want us to be the best team in this yeah. in this organization, yeah. right? I yeah. think that that point you just made is probably potentially the most salient point of this entire conversation, acknowledging that people have had negative experiences when raising this. It has not been safe and there has actually been retribution. Yes. And yes. acknowledging that we know that has happened and this is what we're doing to address that. Yes, yes. So I wanna just emphasize that point. I'm glad you did too, because I think for people, um, I am gonna say white men, but when I say white men, the reason I'm saying it, um, that's where the tech industry has the highest number of people, right? Uh, that demographic. And to have not had the experience of having your career taken off track or stopped simply because you asked to be treated fairly, yeah. right? Right. I'm not saying white men haven't had their careers taken off track, yeah. but they've been for different reasons, Yeah. right? And so I think for somebody to acknowledge that to other people yep. um, who have different very different lived experiences because of the biases from other people. I think that is just really powerful. And I want to acknowledge also, I mean, it is, it is white women as well. Say more. But, you know, it is, uh, in fact, a lot of the conversations that I have are women of color having difficulty with white women managers. And I 
think a lot about this dynamic, a lot about this idea there is only space for one of us in the room, this idea that, uh, you know, just because I'm a white woman does not mean that I do not have unconscious bias, does not believe mean that I have grown up outside of a systemically racist society. Like there are many, many things. And uh, it is also one of those areas where when we talk about women in technology, unless we specifically also say women of color, mm-hmm. queer women, mm-hmm. there tends to be this default bias. Mm-hmm. And I think there is so much complexity in that relationship, clearly like the suffragettes, like there's clearly tremendous mm-hmm. amounts mm-hmm. of complexity mm-hmm. in that relationship. Um, and it is it is one that personally saddens me because there, there are some cultures and communities where I feel like there should be just a natural allyship and synergy. And it, it feels like such a waste um, when there's not, and mm-hmm. there isn't. And so I just want to be clear that these biases are not solely gen, uh, are not like gender based. No, yes, not that. You know what? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right because I, you're, you're absolutely right. I have so many, <laughs> I have so many thoughts, and I feel like we could do a whole other. Um, episode on that but but you're right because you're talking about the intersectionality of race and gender and I think what what tends to happen is people rely on the privilege they have so when you're talking about white women they fall back on their whiteness because that's where they're privileged and that's the only thing that's going to get me in the room and I want to be honest it's hard to get in the room and if that's the thing that got me into the room I'm going to hold on to use it yes 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 as opposed to, oh, my whiteness got me in the room. I am glad I'm in this room. Now, what can I do to, exactly. and this is like going back to the difference between allyship and advocacy. Yes. Now, what can I do to actually advocate mm-hmm. and use my proximity to power to create a more inclusive space and to get yes. more people into the room? Which yes. means we all in our minds have to understand that this is not a zero-sum game. And I just think fundamentally that is not an American sensibility, which is you know, which is challenging. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so I think I, I want to see if there's any like burning, is there any burning thing that you want to say um, before I ask my my final question? Um, any burning thing that I want to say? Uh, yeah, so I want to say just a couple of things about technology and sort of my experience over the past 25, 30 years. Um, meritocracy without conditions isn't really a meritocracy. And I think it's really important that managers hear that. There are still far too many barriers, too much friction in accessing technology roles. And like, this has to change again, because we have a talent shortage. This Mm -hmm. has to change. We need to go where people are. And many organizations, including Wells Fargo, are really committed to making this change. So we need to start considering, and this word bothers me, but non-traditional candidates, candidates without four-year degrees. You see more companies removing a requirement for a four-year degree, particularly in technology, where the shelf life of any technology is two years. Mm -hmm. What you want are competencies, curious people, you know, lifelong learners. What are we doing at community colleges? What are, like, yes. you know, like, how are we thinking about reaching a broader array of people? So I think that's another really important thing for us to recognize. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Thank you for that very actionable point. And again, something that a people manager, even if they're not the hiring manager, but can talk to the hiring manager yep. of like, this is what I need. Yep. So let's hire the right people for this. Um, 
any last actionable thing that a people manager can do to really make their team great, a great environment for everybody, not just people who look like them? I think another thing people managers can do, particularly when we talk about the middle, right, you've heard the frozen middle, but particularly when we talk about the middle, ask their manager for support. Say more. I think it's not just what am I doing in terms of supporting my team, creating space for my team, sincerely and authentically asking for input. Mm-hmm. I also must say, hey, Tanya, I want to, sp- you know, I'm struggling. I'm not certain how to have this conversation with my team. I know it's important, but I need to be honest with you. I, I don't know how to start it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to prioritize this. And I don't feel like I have time because I have these other 15 mm-hmm. things I need to do. Can you help me think through this? Perfect. I love that because what that does is it gives you actually support in having the conversation. It also shares accountability I so that it's not just say, on you. It puts your manager on notice. Yes. Yes. In the yep. most positive way. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Which again, just has a greater impact for the entire organization. Right. Tali, right. Yeah. I've had such a great time in our conversation. You have shared so, so much knowledge and expertise and actionable things for people to actually do literally right after our time together. Uh, so I just really want to thank you for sharing all of that with us. I'm very grateful. Thank it was you. my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Managing Well podcast. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about today's topic, go to www.theladipogroup.com slash podcast for a worksheet on today's episode.